Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast and indeed welcome to any new listeners, especially if you're a first time listener, we're delighted to have you. Today we are talking to Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, who is the author of a new book called Poor, which details her life growing up in dire poverty, in drug addiction and a very dysfunctional childhood. It's moving, it's funny, it's brave and original, just like the author. Katrina was born in Coventry to Irish parents who she says loved drugs more than me. Both of her parents were heroin users. She's the middle child of five who all grew up experiencing hunger and abuse in a house that was visited frequently by the social services. School became her safe place and gave her the only meal she ate all day. Despite teen pregnancy and her own substance abuse, she ended up breaking the cycle of her family's dysfunction in her dad's hometown in Dublin, where she got a degree and then a doctorate in Trinity. And she's now an award-winning lecturer at Maynooth University, where she's deeply involved in breaking down barriers to education that are put in front of girls like her. Now, I have to tell you, this episode is a bit longer than usual because Katrina has a lot to say. And honestly, I could have talked to her for another hour. She says something really important about education, basically that it's made her realise that choice is a myth, that our paths are set by our history. And it is very rare for someone to change that path, which is why we have to tackle the root causes of poverty and addiction and the unfair system that stacks the odds against so many people. This is my conversation with the very brilliant Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Katrina, we're so delighted to have you on. We had you on before with my sister actually talking about finances yes. and women. And little did I know that you had a whole, well, I did sort of know you were amazing. You had a whole book in you and you've written this book. And people are used to me saying things are great on this podcast. So I'm a bit worried that they're just going to think I'm just <laughs> saying it again. But keep saying it anyway. But I will. This book called Poor is amazing and you all need to go and buy it. It is an absolutely incredible read. It's not one of those misery memoir things, but there is a lot of sadness in it and a lot of dysfunction. And we're going to get on to all of that. But I thought it would be really um, sort of to set the scene, really. Just tell us a bit about your dad, Tony, who was essentially a nice middle class boy from Clontarf. Yeah. Who went off the rails. But how did that happen? Because you you talk about the early years of his life in yeah. the book. So my dad was, um, so my earliest memories of my dad are of him being this like vivacious, 
cool guy, always a cigarette or a spliff hanging out of his mouth, listening to music. You know, he was, he was, he was a really fun, vivacious man. But um, his history is, and obviously he's Irish. So, like, we grew up in the UK. Like, I was born in the UK, but we were an Irish family. And my dad was really proud to be Irish. And so, yeah, so my dad was, you know, Tony the Paddy, they'd call him, you know, pop up to Tony the Paddy, whatever. Um, but my dad grew up, was adopted, and we knew that. We all knew it. And, you know, you don't really think that much about your parents' heritage when you're small, but my dad would tell us, oh, I, I was in a fire when I was young and I remember this fire and then I was adopted. So I had this like dramatic vision of my dad like in his cot in a fire and his whole family burning. And then later, you know, I learned that my dad was actually um, in Goldenbridge and we know a lot about the story of Goldenbridge and some of the stories are really horrendous. But we know that my dad, my dad was born in 1953 in Cork and he was adopted in 1958 from Goldenbridge. So there's kind of like five years of his life that we don't know about. But I'm assuming that if he was in a, a Goldenbridge, that maybe them five years were miserable. And my dad was lucky, like he was adopted by this middle class family who had a lovely home in Clontarf. My granddad Jim was this really decent human, like a, a Catholic mass every day, uh, graduated from UCD, had a medicine degree but never practised. He was a lovely man. And so and my grandmother was a bit quieter, a bit stoic, but my dad had like a good family, good opportunity. But I think your life is set really between the first five years. And so my dad couldn't really flourish in that. I think he had a want in him. You know, he told me he used to Mitch school. He went to St. Paul's out in uh, Rohini. He used to Mitch school on his bike and just ride down onto the beach in Dolly Mountain, lie there smoking at age 13 with all his books. Like he loved to read. And I just think maybe there was something broken in him way before. So even with the opportunities that my grandparents brought and the adoption brought, he couldn't take advantage of them. Yeah. So he, he could have gone to Trinity, I think. Yes. But he didn't, he decided no. not to. And instead he went off to England and that's where the English story begins. So he met your mum, Tilly. Yeah. So my dad was a liar. Okay. I'm just gonna, <laughs> like he was an addict and he was a liar. So like I, he, he, there's a, so he told me that he could have gone to Trinity. I found his leaving cert results. I know he went to Balvedere. I know he studied Latin, 100%. That's true. So he was, he's a private educated. Well, I, I think he, was, he went during leaving cert yeah. or maybe did an extra curriculum. I don't know if he actually attended Belvedere, but I have the cert from Belvedere that he did Latin there. And uh, he told me he was offered a place in Trinity and he legged it. And he went to England to sell pictures in Cornwall. So literally him and a bunch of guys got the boat over and it was the 60s and he was just on a mission, early 70s, he was on a mission to get stoned and just enjoy life. And, and that's how he met and, my mother. And I suppose that we're thinking about a time in Ireland when, you know, the opportunities were much more limited and mm. in terms of the Catholic Church and all of that kind of thing, you were under the cosh a bit. So to go to England, as my dad did as mm. well, you just had this freedom to be, uh, to reinvent yourself, I suppose. Exactly. I, I think my dad was always doing that. He was a chameleon. I, I, I think of him as someone who really didn't have a foundation in him. So like while he was really clever and like, he really could speak really well. He was so eloquent in how he spoke. And I think I kind of inherited some of that from him. So he was a good character, had great character about him, but I really think he had no kind of stable foundation in him. And so a life on the road or flitting from thing to thing was 
what suited him. So he went over with these dreams of like driving around Cornwall and selling pictures and living a hippie lifestyle. And then he met my mum. <laughs> <laughs> the story is so funny is um, he was in Coventry and they met at a bus stop. So basically, my dad was a really handsome guy and he asked her for directions and she said, I can direct you. And she directed him back to her little flat <laughs> in uh, Coventry that where she was like, uh, uh, you know, starting her own journey, I suppose, into addiction, smoking a lot of weed, a hippie. And uh, he didn't leave. Well, he did, but, you know, he got her pregnant and he left for a while. But that was the start of them. I suppose, their life together, their crazy life together. Yeah. So the the book, um, the early in the book, there's a scene, I think you're six and you you see your father. Um, you talked about addiction there. This is what you're, the dysfunction that you lived through with your four brothers and sisters. Um, you saw him there strung out with a needle. You thought he was dead and you're six years of age. Is that a very vivid memory? Yeah, it's one of many. So um, my mom and dad's heroin addiction, I think, it's my earliest, I don't remember them before. So the, the earliest memory is, I suppose, of seeing my mom sick from heroin and knowing that that's the thing that will fix her. But this, but my dad was, even though he was this, he was a drug addict and we kind of know about addiction. There's so much more to an addict than just a drug addiction. So my dad was this bright light as well in my life at that age. So at five and six, even though it was really chaotic, my dad was like a little bit stronger than my mom. So like he brought this a bit more security. So when he was there, I felt a little bit safer and he was fun. Like he had the music on. It was great crack when he was around. Now it was also scary. So like my dad was my hero. I was thinking he's the one who's going to save me, I suppose. And this particular day I found him overdosed. So I remember going into his bedroom and um, the house was a mess. It was a shithole. Like as it, it was, it was really dirty. And uh, I remember walking in and just the vision that I have, it's like an imprinted on my brain. It's my dad lying on the um, bed with a needle hanging out of his groin and his skin is kind of blue, white and blue. And I just thought he's dead. And I must have been screaming. I don't remember, but I, I, I know that, you know, one of our lodgers, one of my uncles that stayed with us, he ran into the room and tried to like wake my dad up but it was clear that he'd overdosed at that point my dad had a lot of um abscesses so he was injecting in his groin because i i know now that like when you're excessively using heroin and injecting your groin your your knee your um veins disappear so you have to find either your neck or your groin so my dad was injecting so he had a big abscess and and he'd overdosed and so that is probably one of my earliest but there's many like that i just wrote about that because that was particularly scary because this man that I loved so much, I thought he was dead. And the the fear of that and the scariness of it was just overpowering. Describe your home life at that time and sort of going into uh, school. School was a bit of a refuge. We'll talk about that in a sec. But you mentioned the house was dirty. It's hard for some people to even understand such extreme poverty because you don't even talk of yourself as working class. You call yourself the underclass. It's a, it's a very different level yeah. of poverty. Like, so if you've watched television shows where they, like, if you think about Rabsina's bit, <laughs> you know, cans lying around the place. I know, I like skins maybe. Like, uh, people, um, I know we kind of make caricatures out of people who live in poverty. 
Um, but the reality of my home was that, you know, that it was, there was electric turned off a lot of the time. Like I didn't, we didn't have food. Like I didn't know when we were going to eat. Like I was hungry all the time. I was hungry not only for food, but also for love and for for care and nourishment and someone to recognize me and hear me. So like on, on a day to day, you know, you'd wake up in a bed that had no sheets on it. I wouldn't have a pillow like there'd be springs coming out of the mattress because the beds were so old. The bathroom was disgusting. I, no one would wash me. I'd wet my bed because obviously I was traumatized. I wouldn't get washed. I'd put the same clothes on, leave the same pants on, go downstairs you know, look for food. Obviously, the, the best meal was the sugar sandwich. That was a regular staple in our house. I'd go out, but like, okay, so it was really scary and really horrible. But also like, there was a lot of love there with me and my siblings. So me and my youngest brother particularly, like we just made the best of it. You know, we'd have a bit of crack. We'd go out, go out and play and try to make the best of it. But like living like that, there's this, this constant... L- low level or high level fear and scare like fear about where is everybody what's going to happen in terms of visually so you can see it's just mess everywhere clothes everywhere nothing washed stuff in the sink you know men men visiting strange men coming in and out drinking with my parents music blasting then there's fights you drink you laugh everyone's dancing and then someone's killing each other. And that was like continuously what my life was like for them early years. And if you talk about school then, um, very clearly it comes from the book that school, despite the fact that you were going in dirty clothes and you were being, uh, you know, slagged off for that and being called names, pissy pants and all the names that yeah. you, you say, it was somewhere you could go where you got a meal, yes. where you where you had routine, where you knew what was going to happen every hour. And that seemed to be something you really like gravitated towards. Oh, I loved that. I loved school. Like um, the, I suppose the gifts that my my parents have given me loads of gifts. Like I love my parents and even and and it was really important for me when I wrote the book that that was clear that that they're not just these people who damaged me. Like they were human beings who had their issues but also had lots of skills and lots and my dad actually gave me the most amazing gift which is uh, reading. So like there was always books in our house and um from a really young age I read I loved to read and so going to school and kind of learning. I think I'd like been turned on to that in my home, whether I was born like this or whether it was something that I learned from my dad or I don't know why, but like school was a place, I suppose the learning part and the structure and the food, (laughs) the food was amazing. Like school dinners. Because in England, they have a hot meal for everybody. And and it's not, it's not because you're poor. So it's not like means tested or anything. Everybody gets it. So it's an equalising thing as well, isn't it? We definitely should do it here. Like literally, I know in Desh schools here in Ireland. I think they're bringing it in actually. Well, they're optional here. So like you can get all the schools that are disadvantaged here or DESH um, they can choose what they spend their money on so like I work with a school in Inchicore a lot and I love that school and they always buy chicken fillet rolls with their money like so you I love going in at lunchtime because there's always chicken fillet roll because I still love food at the end of the day like I'm, I'm never going to lose that now like a good meal is like heaven to me because I co- and I'm always like I was starved for years I'm going to eat don't take my meal away you know so um, but yeah so in in England that was 
the thing that, like, how can you concentrate if you haven't got food in your belly? So I know we have breakfast clubs here and especially in certain communities where they recognise that for kids. But like, so I got a meal every day and I still remember the meals, <laughs> like the roly-poly pudding, <laughs> the steak and kidney pie, the dinner ladies. I loved them. I used to really sit in, in um, like, so it was an open plan. It was like in the 80s, obviously. So all the, the classrooms are really open plans. He'd have like first class over there, second class over here. And like the, there was these um, metal like shutters where the meals, so I'd be sitting like listening and all of a sudden I'd hear these metal sounds. Uh, it's like a dog, you know, when the dog hears the lead and the metal sound would sound and I'd be like salivating, like the teacher would be talking. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm getting up there, getting up there first in the queue as quickly as I could to get the food. And um, uh, yeah, so I... School meals are so important. It's really sad now. And in the UK, they're cut, they've cut right. that. So Marcus yeah. Rashford is working really hard to actually get that reinstated because so many kids are still living in poverty. Mm. It's the same here. Like, it doesn't cost us a lot to actually make sure that children are fed and that fed healthily, yeah. you know. So, and then I love the structure. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And I want to talk to you about one of your teachers um, who sort of saw you and saw where, I mean, she must have seen the, the thing you were living in, what you were going through and you turning up and you mentioned wetting the bed and you must have smelt and then your classmates would have known that. And there's a very moving section in the book. If you just tell us about when they, when the teacher actually decided to do something about that, but did it in such a kind, humane way yeah. because you didn't even know how to wash yourself, did no, you? No, I didn't. And obviously, like, I'm smelly. So the kids are like, they don't want to sit next to me. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm just like this little gorgeous little thing who's just not being cared for. And the other I'm going into school, loving the structure, loving the food, but the kids don't want to play with me. And it's so horrible because you're getting rejected at home and rejected in school. And so Miss Arkinson, actually, you know, I got a message from her this morning because she saw the article in The Guardian. Like, oh. I've connected with her. She's actually here in Ireland. And um, I just... It's just amazing to be back connected, like the messages from her. I'm so proud of you. I actually feel emotional saying that just because this Tell woman. Tell us what she did because it's yeah. just incredible. So when I, obviously we were an Irish family in, in, in the Midlands particularly, it's really multicultural. So I grew up Indians, Jamaicans, like there was no, we didn't see difference in that sense and we're all poor to be honest and there was different levels. But like we were, there was a couple of Irish families, we were an Irish family, Scottish family, whatever. 
And so I went the first day of school. I remember this teacher. I was pretty scared of um, teachers or middle class people, I call them poshies. <laughs> Anyone who had this formal dress, like a floral dress on and a, and a mid-size heel, modestly dressed, you call it. I had a fear of because they were the social workers. They were the police. They were the ambulance men. They were going to take us away. And my parents had taught us, you don't tell them anything. And they didn't treat you very well. So when I went to school, I had that kind of fear. I remember this this little dark-haired woman, the first thing she said to me, she's like, Katrina O'Sullivan, an Irish girl. Oh my God, I'm Miss Arkinson. I'm from Ireland as well. And she had this lovely Donegal lilt in her accent. I didn't know it was Donegal then, but I, she had a lovely voice. And I'm like terrified again. What's she, what's the story? You know, like, why is she trying to get me to like her? You know, like a bit suspicious. But she, and she said my name properly because it's about you know, like Catriona and English people would say Catriona. I find myself correcting them all the time. But she said it correctly, which was really important at that time. And, and I remember her one time telling me the story of my name. So she came in, she said, O'Sullivan means O'Sullivan. And she told me the history of the name and the brothers and they fought and one black eye. So like this woman was really just consistent. And she just saw me. She sent me on messages go get that from miss go do this for me so it was like that she saw that I was a good girl and being a good girl meant a lot to me because I didn't have anybody nourishing me at home nobody could see me really and so this particular day like obviously I was a suspicious kid and I think trauma does that to you and so you're kind of aware of any mood change I remember this particular day I'm in class and I can see her and this the teach the nursery assistant kind of whispering and I'm like oh god I'm in trouble you know in my head I'm like well what did what was it what did I do and so I'm sitting there and the nursery assistant and Miss Arkinson kind of said oh Katrina can you come over here for a minute and they're being really nice and I'm really nervous and really thinking like what what was it what did I do I'm thinking it might have been something my brother had done because he was a little shit and I wasn't really a little shit but he was so anyway um the nursery assistant took me into the little toilet and she had this bag with her and I just thought oh god I'm in trouble and she's like you're not in trouble it's really nice and I remember her clearly like she looked like Princess Diana so like she had this you know in the 80s when the women were cutting their hair real short and blonde and kind of flicked and she was like you're not in trouble I'm here to help you and I was like oh okay she said I've got this bag here for you I just want to show you something so she pulled out uh, five pairs of knickers and I remember they had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday written on them and there was little girls with big hats on them and I knew then I knew and I thought she pissy knickers like she thinks I'm pissy she thinks I'm smelly and I felt ashamed and she's like it's okay it's okay we all need to learn how to look after ourselves and we're here to help you do that she said no one has to know this but what I'm going to show you now is how to wash yourself so if you want to just take that off what you have on real soft real nice so she took out a flannel she had this lovely fluffy white towel we had no towels at home and she's like she taught me how to wash and um, she told, so every morning, basically she said, look, this is going to be at my desk every morning. No one's going to know this. Um, you come over to me, just pop your old underwear in there and I'm going to have this here. And just come in the bathroom and clean yourself every day. And I remember in that situation, like the, the shame, but also like this woman really cares about me and feeling cared for. I'm feeling like, so it was a real 
poignant and sad moments, but such an important moment as well because it, it really helped me. Like, and I needed help. And so they did it in a way which was so kind and so caring. Yeah, but so that's the no, story. It's, it's a really moving part of the book. And uh, I'm just thinking about your mother because uh, your mother was an addict. Your dad was your dad was into criminality as well. So he was in and out of prisons. Your mother was left with uh, the five kids with, you know, trying to get her drugs because that's how she was surviving and that was her priority really. Mm. Tell me about her and tell me about your relationship with her and things that happened um, as part of that. Um, I, it's funny, you know, because I think that women, particularly in addiction, are held to this much higher standard than, than men or fathers. The father can just leave, drink himself to death and no one really, everyone kind of says that's terrible. But like if a mother is an addict and a mother isn't, treating their kids correctly or doing the right things they're how they're held to this much horrible high standard and I had that standard because I'm living in a world where I can see what other mothers do so with this lovely neighbor she was Irish and she used to like hug her kid and make her lunch and I became really aware and my mom isn't a good mom and so um, that was really hard. So like it was complex and I was a really outward kid. Like I wasn't, nothing was staying in and it still doesn't, you know, I have to hold it. It's hard to hold. So I'd be like, why are you not feeding me? You know, what are you, stop doing that. And I, I really think that like my mom didn't like that. So like alongside obviously the fact that she was an addict and she also um, had her addiction going on and she was struggling with the guilt of that. She also had a daughter that was actually very open about saying it. So, um, but like, it was really hard. I love my mom. I loved her and I still love her. And one of the beautiful things about this book is that I've actually been able to rediscover her in a way that I couldn't before it. So like, it's it's been really powerful to rediscover Tilly mm in a way, and see her journey in with so much compassion. But as a kid of her, it's a different story. Because so. as you mentioned, there was men in and out of the house. There was drug dealings yeah. going on. And you were left on your own yeah. in very vulnerable situations. Yeah. There's one particular incident that you talk about. Yeah. Could you tell us that? I mean, just in the context of what your mother was also going through as well. Yeah, so my mom actually was prostituting herself. So as a young kid, we had, uh, up the road from us, there was a, a, a this uh, wall where all the prostitutes used to stand. I think, you know, we, we know it in Dublin now, like Ben Burp Street used to be well known for it, but in, in Coventry there was this wall that the prostitutes would stand. And as kids, we'd go up and slag them, not having a clue what it meant. So I'd be standing there, go, 20 pound an hour over the wall, and these women would chase you. There was this woman, Christine, she'd always give you a good tra chase. But this one particular day, we were like, we'll go up and get a chase. And I was like, yeah. And I remember popping my head over the wall and just seeing my mum standing at the wall, I'll never forget she had this blue denim skirt on and she always wore that blue denim skirt for my dad when they, you know, when she was trying to impress him. I just remember that. And so I I just ran. I ran. And I was so embarrassed in front of my friends. I just ran home and like I, I said to my brother, she's up there, you know, and my brother's face was just flat. So I knew he knew. And, I, and then all of a sudden it became really clear because I could see what was happening in our house. So there was these men coming in and going upstairs with her. And so I'm, you know, witnessing that. And like from a child's point of view, it's my biggest thing was my dad is not coming home. That's why I thought he's in prison. He's not coming home. Now, I did actually, me and my mom talked about this as as adults, you know, and I remember her, I remember saying to her once, mom, did you ever 
love me like and she was like you know when I was selling myself Katrina like all I ever thought was I just need to get gear and chips for the kids and like the sadness of that but like the vulnerability that that left us in was horrific so me particularly as a girl like I was abused you know these men that were coming in out of my house the men that my mum and dad were hanging out with like one of them actually you know took advantage of me and I don't want to go into mad graphic detail more so I have spoken about it in the book and I'm really open about it but I'm I'm also mindful of listeners because it's very triggering but the reality is kids who are left vulnerable like me and not cared for by their parents but also by the state because we were under the care of social services as well are are often abused and I was I was sexually abused I was raped by a man one of my parents friends and like What's really sad about them? What age were you? I was seven. But what's really sad, and like that's not the only time that that happened. So lots of things happened to me, but I only I write about some of it because I, I think it's really the reason I wrote about it so openly. There's two reasons. The first reason is one in four people in Ireland have experienced that. Like it's not something that I think that we shouldn't be able to talk about. Like not being able to op- being open about that adds to my shame. It's like I'm the person that needs to hide this. And also I think you know it when you meet me. Like if you know me, you know there's something there. And I know it in other people. And why are we not allowed to go, this horrific thing happened to me and I really need to be heard. And I really want to say, like, this is what I bring with me. This is why I don't trust you fully. This is why I'm like a bit Hmm. suspicious about men all the time. This is a little bit why I read the things that I do. I work in the job I do. So like I wrote about it for that. But I also, um, yes, I don't know the second reason why I wrote about it. I'll probably come back to that. I'm sure you've already said it. But the things you said to your mum. But yeah, uh, so what? I was that little girl. Sorry for interrupting. No, it's okay. You're seven. And you say you actually had words to put on it at the time, which is amazing. Yeah. So that's the thing that um, I knew the right thing to do. Even as that little lost girl was like, when somebody does something bad to you, you tell. And my mom was supposed to be the person that I told because moms are supposed to protect you. That's what everything tells you. So I told my mom, we were actually just leaving his house, actually. And I said to my mom, she was like, why are you being rude to him? And I said, he he raped me, mom. And she just said, oh, real flat. Oh, yeah, well, he did that to me, too. And honestly, it's one of the most horrific memories of my childhood, that particular piece. And even when I say it, like that little girl is still here. I'm still there. I'm still in that moment. Like she's kind of trapped there because not only have I been broken and separated from my whole family because of what was done to me, the, the care and love I had with my brothers was all gone because now I was this thing, This my body had let me down. I'd also realized that no one was going to help me. And like, that's a horrific place to be in as a little girl. Because, you're, you're, you know, I was really hopeful and vivacious. I read all my books. I thought someone was going to save me. And in that moment, it was like, no one's care, No one cares. No one's coming. I, I mean, your dad, we mentioned, was in prison. So you were literally, ha- you were going in. T- this is your, norm- your your reality. Your normality was hiding drugs in your underwear. Yeah. So that your mum, because you didn't, ser- they didn't search the kids in prison. They only searched your mum. Yeah. So then your mum would take them out of your underwear and the yeah. visit. And, and kiss my dad. Kiss your dad and pass the drugs. I mean, yeah. these kind of things, and there's lots of them. And probably, as you said, lots that you haven't put in the book. That was your, your that normality. That was normal. I, I actually remember um, about, 
about a year ago, I was in a staff meeting in in psychology. Like I'm in, I'm a lecturer now, I'm a nurse, and I love my job. And I remember someone had mentioned that their their car had been broken into, or something had been broken into, and they're like, and they had their kids with them. The little, they were like real kind of harsh about the kids, as if like, oh, uh, their kids were bad. And I didn't say anything, but I was remembering, like, you, I was, like, it was normal for us to commit crime as well. Like, actually, like, I used to get slagged in our home because I didn't like smoking weed. And they were like, oh, it's goody two-shoes, you know, because she doesn't want to have a spiff with us. Now, that's not everybody wasn't, but that's, you know, it's quite normal. It was quite normal to engage in, like, criminal behavior, like, um, and I'm not, like, saying that that's right. But, like, a kid in that shouldn't be judged at the end of the day. So, like, my, yeah, it was normal. We went to prison. Winston Green, I'd be there. I'd be hiding something in my pants from my mom, shitting myself, because I knew, like, the, and I'd be, and then she'd be passing it. I'd be terrified. The whole visit, I couldn't relax until I knew that she'd passed it over and then we could have a bit of a relaxing visit with my dad. Like, visiting my dad in prison was horrific anyway. And, like, he was so well in prison, like, because he had a food and he was doing so well. And we we're all there, like, dirty and horrible. And he's kind of thriving in there because he's getting his drugs given to him and he's doing whatever he's doing there. But, yeah, that was hard. And you said as you get, uh, get older and to being a teenager, it was like there was just this family business almost, buying and selling the drugs to use yourself. So you started to take drugs with the family then. You didn't like yeah. weed, but you were taking other things. Yeah. So and that was just, again, yeah, just normal. Just normal. But don't get me wrong. Like, I knew it was wrong. Like, I, uh, you know, I think most people who get into taking drugs know that it's not a good thing to do. But like, there's other things that drive behaviour than, than our motivation and our thoughts. There's loads of other things. So yeah, drugs, stealing, robbing cars, like going out with the joyrider. That was it. Like I, as a teen, like as a teenager, as I got into my teens, like it gets harder, I think, to stay positive. Like, so as a kid, I loved school and I was doing really, you know, I read and teachers loved me and I was kind of thriving in school a little bit. I was really good in school, really bright and quick. But then as you keep growing and the, the shit just keeps piling on, and there's no difference. You don't see anyone escaping. There's no difference. It's like, I just lean into this. You know what I mean? I'm just going to, you know, why why try be any different? And so, like, there's these moments where you kind of make choices and you don't choose for your whole life. You just choose for them moments. And then choices become, like, a, a big decision. So, like, I'd be choosing to, like, mid school, hang out up the shops, go out with the joyrider, smoke weed, take acid, go to the raves. I was in that life and loving it, but also inside thinking, I want I want something better than this, like loving school. But little little decisions, little decisions ended up with <laughs> me being 15 and pregnant. And then that's a big decision then because all of a sudden I'm like this good kid in school and there's opportunities there, but I'm also a delinquent. Now, Lynn hates that word, you know. Lynn Ruan, we're Lynn, talking about. She's my friend, the yeah. <laughs> but she hates me saying delinquent. But I was a delinquent, yeah. like, actually, you know, scary girl, very angry. Don't mess with me. I'll fucking kill you. You know, this type of girl. And um, But also then the school bit is in the background and I'm like, I can't, I'm still loving Shakespeare secretly. I loved books. I loved it all. But I couldn't tell my friends that. So I hadn't, like, this life. And it is normal in our house to smoke weed and it's normal to rob. And sell drugs. So we're selling drugs from the house. Well known in our area that you go to number three if you want to buy whatever, you know. And so, um, yeah, it was a tough 
peace and then I got pregnant. I was just going to say, so now you're uh, you're about to have a baby and you decide to have the baby. And it, the, the, <laughs> there's a scene in the book where you go and you're telling your, your dad and your mum that, that you're pregnant and eventually they're basically like, well, you can't stay here. It's, yeah. I just found that fascinating. Yeah. I mean, they, they looked around the house, obviously, and saw we cannot bring another mouth into this house, another baby. No. It's not going to be safe. And you had to leave your yeah. home. Yes. I mean... That was... See... I, I, it's a weird thing in my home, like to understand the mentality of the home. Okay, so I think my mom actually thought I'd get a council flat. So right. like, so she thought it was a good idea to yeah, kick you out in a way like, so that you'd get accommodated. Yeah, girls like me, like, and we're we're actually like criticised in the public for this, right? You go home, unless you get a flat. That was that's the mentality. It still is now, like in poverty. But like, I I genuinely didn't have any other knowledge. Like, there was no thing that I was ignoring. There was no mad, like, options of me going and getting a wonderful job and thinking, like, this is what you did. So I think my mom also, my mom thought, I think my mom probably thought she'll get a flat. But also, I was annoying them. I was annoying them. Because, like, obviously, I'm external. I would say it. My nickname was Mouth. My brothers slagged me my whole childhood because I'd be like, no, we're not allowed to do that. You know, like, I genuinely w- would fight for for things and when I got pregnant I was like really trying to like and we th- this this can't we need to clean this do this right. I just think they couldn't so you were being a bit more annoying than usual yeah because you were aware that you were going to have to bring yeah in. yeah yeah but I also think that they yeah I don't know the mentality of it and I remember my brothers were so upset that they were doing that to me yeah they were really devastated and I was that is the hardest period of my life like I know my childhood sounds it is really horrific. Helpful. But the loneliness, like I was kicked out, I had no one. Like I'd lived in this kind of fantasy previous to that, that something was going to happen. Someone was there. So I'd be in school and I'd be thinking like, you know, my dad does love me or they will get better or things will get better. And like then all of a sudden I'm like homeless, living in a squat. It's absolutely horrific. There's people just drinking, coming in. It's a party gaff. I'm like huge, eating chips every day, having a baby, and I'm completely alone. At 15. At 15. And um, I couldn't even like fathom the full consequence of like what it's like to be a mother. But I I had no one. And that is so lonely. And then I went into, I was put into a mother and baby hostel in, in in Birmingham. And there, I was there for like 18 months and I, no one visited me there. Not one member of my family, not my son's dad. And I, I when I, I'm speaking that, like there's a voice in my head that sounds like, oh, you sound like a real victim. Like, don't say that. But like the truth is like, oh, it was broken then, alone. The only light in my life was my little boy, you know. And sorry, Jesus, it's, it's hard to say that because I've, you know, the, the childhood stuff is awful, but loneliness, being completely alone, is horrific. Um, especially for someone like me who, you know, I wanted a better life. And um, yeah, so that was a really, really hard time in my life. And you did eventually get a, a flat. Yes. Um, but what I find really interesting about the book, 
because I think people don't necessarily understand it. There's a certain sense of, oh, well, you know, you wanted something better, so you should have just gone and found something better. But in a way, you talked about choices earlier. Like, there isn't many choices. You're kind of cons- consigned to a, to sort of repeat almost what you've been role modelled. So you you became yourself someone who was out all the time, even though you had a young son. Yeah. You, you wanted to go out and meet men, thinking that maybe you'll find a man who was going to, you know, be yeah. the one that was going to fix, fix the me. life. But there was drink and there was drugs and all all of that going yeah. on and you know it's like there was no choice really yeah. even though there was something inside of you saying there's something else yeah but there's kind of like this inevitability about how your life goes at that point isn't I, there I yeah like we you know if you, theoretically like poverty is inherited like it's a cycle and you don't become mobile you, you, the cycle goes downwards it doesn't go upwards at the end of the day and like I said recently, like choice is a myth. It's a myth. It's perpetuated by the middle classes. They actually tell us you can change your own life. I, it would, I'd love to be able to. You had no way to do that. It's not even that I had, I never had a, a, a thought. I never knew anything different at the end of the day. And like when you're carrying the level of trauma that I was, so I had the experience in my family where everybody did this. All of my community acted like this. We were all the same. We're all getting drunk. We're escaping. We're doing partying. We're borrowing, beggaring, borrowing, stealing, getting the social welfare. Your your goal is to get a flat, be on your social welfare. Everybody's the same. There's no like thought of another life. I never saw anybody different. Nobody went to university. Never ever told me I could go to university. Success for a girl like me was actually completing the leaving sir. Like that was the parameter for me, for someone like me. And it was communicated to me in every interaction I had in school, in my community. It was like, you know, you're going to be a cleaner. You're going to be a hairdresser if you're lucky. And so, yeah, like I kind of feel as if I just followed my destiny, which was set by my family history. and you know, uh, went into this real spin of like taking drugs, partying, drinking, not paying my bills. The You know, the regret in that obviously is my son. I think actually having him was the thing that made me change. It was the yeah. driving. It was, it, I, I, I think I wanted to be better. And not that my mom didn't want to be better, but like I hadn't got as much as her at that point to deal with and so I think that um, and I was lucky enough to look for help in Ireland when we were flooded with money yeah. and there was so much opportunity. Well, let's, let's talk about that because your mum and dad actually went back to Ireland to skip bail. He was yeah. he was, <laughs> he was was done for something but yeah. he thought well best thing to do is yeah. to get out of here. Yeah. Went over and came to you and said I'm bringing John yeah. and he took your son. It's, it's interesting because I suppose some people would say well it was all your mum and dad's fault for the, the situation you were in but it, he came along and he saw what way you were living and he said I'm taking John and I'm going to bring him to Dublin. Yeah. So and my dad actually got, he came back to Dublin. My mum and dad did. And my dad got sober here. So he went to AA. He was like this born again. I was a bit resentful, obviously. Like, why couldn't you have done it when I was three? But that's life. Um, but yeah, he came. Actually, I was in a mess. He'd, they'd been over here a year. And he came over and saw the way I was. And he's like, I'm taking John. And so this man who like was the villain in my story becomes the hero because not only does he um, rescue my son, but eventually he rescues me because he gives me a place, he gives me a haven to come to and actually begin a journey of recovery. And so that was great that he took him 
And like for John, like, I, you know, this is my story, not John's story. But for John, it was so important that John had that bond with my dad. And my dad was really, really trying to, I suppose, make amends. And he did that through his relationship with John. And while my dad never fully, in my opinion, became well, in he he still dabbled. He did his bits and pieces. It wasn't like, obviously, he had an affair. He did all these things. But like he tried hard to ensure that John had some stability and I'll be forever grateful for that because not only did he give it to him, but he gave me the place where I could come to and eventually find myself. And you came when you were 20 and there's there's another bit in the book where you see John after you haven't seen him for a while and something you you sort of can see how much better off he is and how nurtured he's been. And that's a moment for you, isn't it, to realise that's the kind of life you want to give him. Yeah, so (laughs) I'm really scared about this book in one way because there's um, (laughs) um In Birmingham, there's this at the news. I was on the news in Birmingham when John was about two and a half, three. I'm dreading this coming out somewhere. Oh, no. So, so basically, like John was really wild. Like he didn't, he didn't have consistency in me. And we took him to doctor surgery. I took him to doctor surgery, and actually they barred him from the doctor surgery. So we rang Midlands today, and I, I I'm sitting in my couch going, I can't believe they left him. They they, they barred him from the surgery. But to give you an idea, this what he was wild. He didn't have this security that was needed for him to, you know behave himself he, he was... and so I'd left this kind of whirlwind of a child in in England he'd gone to Ireland and all of, I remember walking into my grandparents house in, in Clontarf Dublin. in Dublin yeah. and it, he's just so peaceful he's just sitting there playing I'm like Who is what this? happened and then his face when I walked in like the love like because he adored me you know like you do love your mum no matter what you know, and he adored me and that was just so such a poignant moment. And I remember thinking, I want to do this for him. Now, I'd love to tell you that. I just chose it then and it all got better and everything was perfect. <laughs> and, and John would love me to say that as well. <laughs> I'm but, sure. But that's not what happened. No. But I think there was then moments of wanting it and then asking for it and then having the this, the resources made available to me were really, really important. Yeah. Um, so like there, like you say, there wasn't, it wasn't immediate. There was a few years of you going to your rock bottom, yeah. you know, where you just leave John with your parents and go off for four or five days off on a bender. Yeah. The Blue Lion pub features a lot. Oh, you, yeah. You lived near my neck of the woods in North Strand yeah. up in Dublin 1. Yeah. So you were living an inner city life where you were still at, at the the bad things yeah. that weren't helping you. Well, I was up and down with it here. So like, I, um, yeah, I lived in Summerhill, loved it. I was embraced by the townies, loved the townies, feel like a townie. <laughs> um, so my husband calls me a townie and John, me and John lived in town. So John was like the, originally he was the English kid with football because like he just played out in Matt Talbot Court his whole, all day. And I, I loved living in town. It was like, it was like I found my people at the end of the day because like it's the same as where I came from. And so I loved living in town. But yeah, like my dad and mom would take John at weekends and I'd still be partying and, and trying to find my way. But it was better. I was better. I was trying. I was trying. And luckily for me in town, there were so many resources then in town. So Joe Dowling, a wonderful guy. From it's a community ta- worker. Community yeah. worker from town. He had this little office at, at Five Lamps and you could just pop in and have a cup of tea, you know. And like I go in there, Joe, oh, like I'm messing up this, that, and the other. And Joe be like, you need this. You know, here's this. But like, because you could relate to him, you knew he was one of, he was one he of us. He wasn't judging you. No, he was yeah. one of us. He was this guy that you could share with. Like Joe was great. Joe really put me in touch with loads of different resources, loads of different community um 
courses and offerings. So like back then, it's funny you told me about, you know, you being a Maynooth and you dropping out. She didn't drop out, by the <laughs> I way. I was telling Katrina earlier that I was on a Maynooth dropout where she is now a fancy lecturer. So it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> Judging you, no, I'm joking. But the thing is, you know, like dropping out is really important. Like you, when you're a girl like me particularly, you don't know what you want to do. You know, so you should be able to start a course and leave it. You can't do that now. You start a course now. You lose your Susie Grant. You lose all your money. That's it. One shot, you're out. And like you could do something wrong. And so um, back then, I was able to like try things. So Joe would like, I remember going to the Larkin Centre and doing a parenting course. It was my first like real reintroduction to any education. So I hadn't done a parenting course. I'm winging it, you know, looking at other women going, my friend Audrey was a brilliant man and I was looking at her going, oh, she makes dinner every day, right? That's what you do. <laughs> you know, like really like copying people. Well, you have to learn it because you weren't shown it. I mean, in fairness. Now saying that, like I have a lion heart of love for my child. Like I would, you know, so uh, while I was struggling, like he was loved, like, and he, I loved him deeply and would have done anything for him. But like, I just didn't know the basics. So I did this parenting course. I remember like, I used to think chicken nuggets was like a healthy meal. I'm not joking. Like I used to be, I'm cooking the dinner. And then they they taught me about the the food pyramids, you know, broccoli at the, you know, you're supposed to have more broccoli than you are, have processed food and all this stuff. I was like, oh my God. And this is, because we lived on Fingers Crispy pancakes and and chicken nuggets and and, and McCain oven chips. Like that was our staple diet. Like, and a veg was beans, like a tin of beans. So then all of a sudden I'm like learning all this stuff. But that course was brilliant because it ran, it, it ran in line with, I'm a single mother. I'm in town on my own. It was around his school hours. Mm. So I drop him off to William Street School, pop in, do a t- couple of hours there. There was other women like me, have a cup of tea, chat, what story has going on, and do your bit of learning and pick him up. And it was like my brain was, a, oh, this is the, I was still reading, always read, but this is like, oh, I like this, you know. And so having opportunities like that and the, the funding to support women because like they, you know when the country's rich it trickles down and we want to then try and save the poor the poor people yeah. it's only then do we care about the single mothers at the end of the day mm. and so at that time there was loads of money and then the other important thing was I remember going to Joe like I couldn't hold down a relationship like I had no value on myself why would I you know so I'd been mistreated in relationships but also mistreated myself because I didn't know how to do it so I was constantly going for the wrong guy in inverted commas you know the unavailable guy in whatever form that would come and I remember one time going down to Joe like I can't find a man Joe you know and Joe's like you don't need a man you need therapy and um he didn't say it like that but he was really candid but and I believed him and so he referred me to uh, Oasis Counseling in, in Sher- uh, Sheriff Street and it was free, you know. And this woman, Mary, I remember going in, she had these really flat black shoes. I just remember I used to look at her shoes all the time. And that was my first real then beginning of actually getting getting better. Yeah. And it was free. And that was so important. Like, and like, why do we not? still do that like if I try to get into Oasis now there's a six month waiting list so like when a woman wants to change when she's ready in that moment we should have everything there because it's not like I understand like some people don't understand poverty they really don't know what it's like but like I have changed my life my children's lives I'm actually contributing to education in ways that 
other people like me, like other people are not. Like I, like investment in me has saved the state millions because I'm not now killing myself with drugs. I'm not dying early. I'm not, you know, my mental health is good. My children are thriving. They're going to have good jobs. They're going to contribute. Like an investment in poverty isn't like giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it. It's actually great for society. But also the return is what the you're talking about. The return is massive. So like, but we act as if it's just putting money into a black hole. It's, and it's not, not. You get so much back out as we can see. Just moving it on a bit because a few turning points. I mean, you did have to go into recovery into the Rutland Centre, yeah. which which wasn't, again, the end of that journey, but it was the beginning of, of you getting, I suppose, healthier, yeah. which was great because you'd gone to your dad, told him, just confessed yeah. how dysfunctional you were and yeah. how you needed help. And he was the one who suggested that. So again, fair play to Tony for yeah. for coming up with that. And and then it was a chance meeting on O'Connell Street, and this is a really important part yeah. of the book. You you met this girl, Karen, who you knew from town. Yeah, she was Joe's, a single mother, yeah. like you, Joe's daughter. Joe's daughter, yeah. And you're walking across Connell Street, Penny's there. Yeah, Penny. So literally, like every Thursday. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Morning, I'd be in Summerhill, I'd get my lone parents' book, head straight over to Penny's and get myself a few bits. Then I'd probably get myself a fry on Parnell Street. This is what we did. And this particular day, I remember I met Karen outside Penny's on O'Connell Street and how's going? What story? She was like me. She had kitchen on her own and she was like, <laughs> I'm in Trinity College. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck off. Like literally, like I did not think they let you in. Like I thought that there was a beeper that would like tell if you had like if you knew what couscous was and if you wore a satchel and a scarf. You know what I mean? And I say that facetiously, but genuinely. I thought they wouldn't let us in. Like if so, you were wearing gold hoops. Yeah, I love my in. hoops like yeah. and my tan and my hunbun at that time. So like, I'm like, what? You know, having somebody like me in there was just pivotal. Like, and I know like I'm held up as an example for other girls, but like, it's not just that she was in there. There was all these other system things in place. But like, one thing you have to remember about girls like me, like I'm really skilled. Like, I've survived. Like, I'm resilient. I'm mouthy. I'm able to advocate for myself, which is mouthy. You can read a room. I can read a room. I'm sensitive to changes. All these, I can research because I'm, like, spying on my mom and dad my whole life. So, like, there's loads of reasons other than trying to rescue people, to empower them, to participate. Like, we bring skills to the world if you just give us the opportunity to flourish. And so that skill, when she told me she was in Trinity, I was like, if she's going to her. 
I'm going there. So you didn't go for a fry, which no. is amazing. You turned around, no. you crossed over the bridge. I went over to Goldsmith Hall. Hilarious. And I, I mean, that to me was just a brilliant. Like you actually didn't wait to go home no. and think about it. No, you just, just went over. Yeah. And I knocked on the door. Irina Boydal, another woman who changed my life. Like these stepping stones. And I talk about it in the book. I am very small in my own story, like in my own story of success. I know people like to think that I did it. I didn't. I was helped so much along the way. Karen, Audrey Coakley. was Mr. Pickering Mr. in England. Pickering. We haven't spoken with him. He was her teacher, amazing mom. Yeah, so like there were so many people who just saw potential in me and actually gave me an opportunity. Irina Boydow knocked on the door. Um, excuse me, I heard about this thing called the Trinity Access Programme. My friend Karen's doing it. She stood in Lorna. She was like, breathe, come in. <laughs> Unfortunately now, you can't do that. So, like, you can't knock on the door of the Trinity Access Programme now and get to know the person. It's so much bigger now, so much harder. So that personal element isn't in it, unfortunately. But at that time, Irina, this is the really important piece, is that I told her, I don't know why, if it was the day that was in it, but I said everything. I said, I'm so lost. My mum and dad were this. I, I love books. I don't can't tell anyone that. I want a life. And she just looked at me and she was like, Aren't you so amazing? And to have one of them middle class women <laughs> with the flowers. In the modest dress <laughs> at, who's in Trinity College, tell you're amazing is 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 mind blowing. Like I just felt a, a few feet taller in that moment. And she um said to me, We would love you to apply. And I found myself like three weeks later in an interview with these <laughs> lecturers. Like I, but I did my work. Like I investigated what it was. I didn't know what I was actually getting into because I think if I'd have known what it was like to study in Trinity, I might not have applied. Mm. And I'm not trying to put other people off, but it's not like this fairy tale where you go in and you feel like you belong. Like it's tough. Not academically. Academically, I was well able. Like and I thrived. But the other bits were really hard, especially that as I was a mother on my own and I had all this stuff. But actually, I found myself in this interview thinking I was blowing it. And then he asked me about books. And again, Mr. Pickering and all of my people who'd invested in me, I was able to like just tell them then. I was reading The Road Less Travelled. I never, Anthony DeMello. <laughs> I was like, well, theoretically, you know. <laughs> but I was alive then yeah. and they could see it. And I knew I'd got it. And the wonderful thing about that, and it's sad for me now, but like, my dad framed the letter, the offer letter. He was so, I think for him, it was like, I didn't ruin everything. I didn't ruin everything. Yeah. So I used to go into his house and he'd have this, dear <laughs> Katrina. <laughs> you know, he framed everything actually, but that, that for, for onwards around Trinity, but that was the thing that really he was so proud of. Mm. And I, I love that, mm. that he got, you know, that feeling. Yeah. Now you had you did your Trinity access, but you did have a bit of a wobble, um, because you got pregnant again, right? And I think it's really important that you tell the story in the yeah. book because you had an abortion, yeah. And you tell it in a really. I was I was so glad. Sorry when when I heard you were read, read that you were pregnant again. I was like, oh please don't let her have this I baby. <laughs> And I thought, oh, well done, Katrina. I know. Brilliant. And yeah. I'm so sorry that you had to travel as many yeah, of us that did. That was horrible. Yeah. And especially because you couldn't, because of your blood type, you oh. couldn't have the procedure that day. Yeah. So you had to stay another night, which messed up all your plans in terms of financially and mm. everything. So just horrible.
terrible. Yeah. Um, but you did that thing for yourself. I did. And for my child and for John yeah. and for, for my life and my future. And yeah. I have no regrets about that at all. And I'm really happy to have told that story. I did worry about writing it because you just know that people ha- comment and they, they make comments in ways that they just have no, they've no business talking about what I do with my body at the end of the day. The horrific piece was having to travel and like I had to travel and I discovered that I had this funny blood and then I had to tell everybody that I was over there because I had no money to to stay an extra night which was horrific then because then I had like my mom knew and my mom used to throw it in my face when she was drunk it was horrible so like but yeah I I had to I made that choice for me and for my future and even I think even if I wasn't in Trinity College at the time I still would have done it because I wasn't able to have another child and be a mother to another child and I I think that's a really important thing to tell but I was concerned I remember my husband saying I said it to him I'm really worried about how people are going to respond to that Dave and he was like that's just that's just women's health care. Oh, like that's just Dave. women's health care. Like what? <laughs> everybody loves Dave. Dave's not available. Everybody, just stay away from Dave. Dave He's is married. Very, one of the stars of the book. It yeah. has to be said. But um, you did have a wobble, like where you were supposed to do your exams, yeah. and you you went off the rails again, and you decided you were sort of the shame. I think this comes through the book. There's a part of you that thinks you're bad. That the things that happened to you happened to you because there's something wrong oh, and broken in you that you hadn't quite pieced together. But going to college helped you piece it together that this system that you were living in and, and it wasn't your fault yeah. that you were a, you were a victim we don't like that word too much but it was the things that had happened to you made you where you were not something intrinsically bad in you which exactly. is the shame that you were carrying I think like success is hard for someone like me like you get ingrained like I talk about it in the book as like a set point that you 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 become used to a certain level. So living without anxiety was really hard for me or drama because so and similarly like succeeding was was not normal and it's not a conscious thing. So I don't want anyone to hear this and think oh they choose to wreck their own life and not be successful. There's other things that drive behavior really strongly and like one of the things for me was I found it really difficult to deal with being successful. I uh, like Trinity. So like, and and many times I'd had opportunities in my life, like when I did my GCSEs and I didn't wake up to do the maths exam. Similarly with this, I was afraid of succeeding and I relapsed. I went on a bender just at the end of the Trinity Access programs when I was about to take my exams. I was sitting in the Blue Line pub and I I remember like uh, Trinity was gone for me. I I don't belong there anyway. I'm so different. No, it's not for me. And it was probably easier to be in that because being in Trinity is really, really hard. Mm. Like being successful and a different person is really hard. Mm. And so I was really lucky because Irina that woman, that the yeah. nice flowery dress woman flowery came dress woman. and she wasn't she having on it. My she door. wasn't having it. She wasn't having it. She was like, you're doing your exams. Even if I have to come over here and drag you to the exams, you're coming. And I'm like, oh, okay, like terrified to say no to her. Uh, you know, like people pleasing in some ways, but like also like feeling like, oh, she she's right. I have to do it. So like she, I I did my exams and I decided I'm just going to do the exams. I'm not going to Trinity. I'm not do. I'm just going to finish the year. And then I obviously got the offer of, I got offered a couple of degrees in Trinity, but I got the offer of psychology. Psychology, which is what, because I, I must say you were you were cleaning uh, Connolly Station at one point. That yeah. was one of your jobs. And there's this scene where you go there and you're cleaning, uh, I think you call it the dirtiest 
office in Ireland or Dublin in the world. I say it's horrible. Yeah. And you're cleaning toilets and you're thinking, there's something else. Who am I? What yeah. is this? Is this the purpose of my life? Is this it? And this is what kind of kept. And then when you're reading philosophy and psychology, you're getting more into those questions. Yeah. So it was like a light turning on for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Self-inquiry and all of that with the therapy that you'd done too. Yeah, exactly. I think the wonderful thing about being in therapy, I was really able to like integrate and heal some of the old stuff, but also then like I started to really kind of like myself and think where who am I like what am I meant to be I remember cleaning the shitty toilet excuse me but I'm cleaning the toilets going is this it is this what my destiny is like and I'm not knowing that what else is there but I'm like this can't be it like I can't be made for this (laughs) and like not that there's anything wrong with cleaning I know great women who clean and that's their gig and they love it and they have a great life for it and that's it but like for me I was like, I, I don't really want to do this. I personally think no one aspires to do that. Like no one goes to school and thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to clean toilets for the rest of my life. But like for me, I was like, I need, I wanted something more. And you got into psychology and that was brilliant. And I, this story of you going to find your results. So you really knuckled down and you were really into it. But um, they post the results up on a, on a sheet of paper. Yeah. And most people, so it starts with the top marks at the top. And you most people go from the top down to see where their name is. Yeah. Well, you were hilarious because Start you, even though you'd been studying away, doing really well, you know, doing, yeah. completing all your assignments, yeah. thriving in this place. Yeah. You started from the bottom, assuming that your name was going to come yeah. quicker if you started at the bottom. Yeah. So like, obviously, in psychology and Trinity like these kids are like 550 leaving set points driven as hell you know like it's it, they're, it's really lovely but they're really competitive as well and like so you're in third I got, I got a 2-1 in third year I'm going into fourth year but you're hearing now if you want to be anything you need to get a 2-1 like previous to that I was like just getting in was enough and now I'm like supposed to get a 2-1 and I've got this kid I'm on my own and I just had another one so I had a baby yeah, in second so now year now you're a lovely partner Dave you'd yeah, met him by this yeah. stage so I had a baby as well in second year didn't take a year out stayed in so I'm like so I have this stress about it and then yeah the boards and it's so weird the way they put the boards the the, the results up on the board now you don't see your name it's just your student number. Okay, it used yeah. to be your name but it's not anymore so I start at the bottom and I'm like right there's no I'm not a fail thank god up 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 thirds no two twos oh no no two twos oh my god two ones two ones and then I'm not there and I'm like, am I even here? And then you just take, and I was the first number after the first. I need to say that. I wasn't top of the class. Amy Brogan was top. Amy, well done. <laughs> and then Milena. So, but I was just over. 71. I'm going to say it. 71. And I'm like, I literally, the chav, the, the common girl, the poverty. I was like, yeah, You got it first. You got it first. But like, no, but. The 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 demureness of all, I don't even that's a word the the how controlled everybody is in in you know I think it's normal in in that kind of environment middle class people are just so, there's just this controlled thing you don't say politeness or something so I'm in the middle of the psychology department and I'm like screaming everyone's like looking at their and walking away and I just went yes oh my god I got a first <laughs> like telling them all because you're not supposed to tell anyone and I and I remember David Heavey who's you know was the head one of the lecturers he came out and he was like I'm so happy for you you know because obviously they don't get that very often where someone goes crazy in the <laughs> in the hallway and I remember Rose Wilden as well she was the secretary she ran out and she because I loved I loved all the service staff 
like I got on so well with anybody in the service position because mm. I could relate to them. So like she was delighted. But yeah, that was a really important and, moment. And you had been um, a dinner lady in the Institute, yes. which is where all the kids go to spend lots of money to get grinds. <laughs> yeah. And you've been giving them sausage rolls. And one of those people had come up to you in college, hadn't they? One yeah. of the young She was in ones. my class. She was in your class. Yeah, so amazing. two years before I had, um, got into Trinity, I was the dinner lady in, in the Institute of Education. I I didn't know what the Institute was. So I had no idea about private school, public... I knew about private school, but I didn't know that you could go and literally pay for your leave insert. And so I was like, well, for really good leave insert. So I, I was like serving these kids sausage rolls, playing hip hop music in the background. And they, they'd be coming in like going, this... I wasn't that much older than them, to be honest, but... Um, yeah, so there was a couple of kids in there that I got to know really well because there was actually a good few working class kids whose families knew and they'd send their kids. So I got to know them really well. So we'd have the bit of crack. But then I, when I got into Trinity, I remember it's the first week or two and there was this girl and she had really short dreadlocks and I remember her coming up to me. Oh my God, you were in the Institute. And I was like, oh, the shame of it. <laughs> the shame. I was like, yeah, like, Yeah. You know, like thinking she was going to talk. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my God. Why are you? How did you get in here? Like, you know, and I'm like, you know, dinner ladies are clever, too. Like, we have brains. <laughs> um, but, she, you know, it's she that didn't ignorance. Mean it in a bad way. But, she, she, but she, I mean, it is still a bad thing. Oh, she shouldn't have been mentioning it or making such a big deal. Totally. Yeah, but she was like, she was a lovely girl, but actually. The, the other I, encounter I want to tell people about as well is um, you went on to do a PhD because obviously by this stage, you're just, you know, I'm just going to go on to do whatever the next thing is and you were teaching things in, in Trinity as part of that and uh, there was a woman in her <laughs> floral dress again in the middle class uniform came up to you as you were stacking some chairs before the class started. Tell us about that. Well, it's funny because I, I, so I didn't know what PhD was, okay? So it's really important to say that a lot of access students like me, they don't do PhDs. So what happens is they get the degree and generally they go off and do, it's very hard for them to go all the way because it's no one really does and there's no role models in that or people that you see. So I really didn't know what a PhD was. And like my, I just loved the fact that my supervisor thought I was good enough to do it. And he told me I should apply for the scholarship. And I was in this like, will I, what, will I just go and get a job now? And Dave was like, get a job, lazy. <laughs> and so I was like, will I? And then I got the studentship and I was like, I'm just staying here. I love this. I feel so good. I love learning. But um, and then I started lecturing. So like in my fourth year of my PhD, I started lecturing and I'd actually begin. I'd really started to learn about inequality then. Like I could and my PhD wasn't on that, but I could see these kids get everything. We got nothing. And how are we expected these? So I was really becoming aware of my my background class. And I was trying to like be myself because I'd gone through like trying to wear the floral dresses and Oasis outfits and whatever, warehouse, shopping in warehouse. <laughs> you know, I used to have these velvet mid-heel mid shoes that I used to wear and it wasn't me. And so I was lecturing. I was like, I'm just going to be me, you know, ripped jeans, fake tan, hoops, hair, whatever. And I, <laughs> the lecturer was before me in the arts block. He'd left a mess on the stage. So I was like, like chairs and stuff. So I was just cleaning it up, moving things around. And this girl, excuse me. Um, I'm sorry, uh, you can't be uh, here. Uh, there's a lecturer on now. And I was like, uh, I am the lecturer. But it was hard. That was really hard because I was like... She thought you were the cleaner. She thought I was the cleaner. And she was really brazen. Oh, sorry. And she went and sat down like as if it was nothing. And I'm like, you know, but that was hard because I was like, it's true. I don't belong here. Like, you can't be you here. Like, you can't be you here. No, no matter what they say in academia or in them circles, 
you can't really be who you are. You can do it to a certain extent, but don't go too far at the end of the day. And I went too far by dressing the way I'd normally dress, which is unfortunate, you know, and I've, I've experienced that in my job in many ways, but that was a, a poignant moment for me. And one of the, you know, one of the many, one of the reasons why I did leave Trinity, but also, you know, one of the reasons why I've like really worked hard in my job to try to like talk about this stuff and make it a little bit fairer and easier for girls like me. So if you don't see people like you, you're never going to aspire to it. Like I said, I never saw anybody do this. And um, I, I, if I'd have saw someone, maybe it'd have, bit di- it'd have been different. Now, it's just it's not just about seeing someone. I must say as well, like the reason I succeeded in Trinity was because I had a grant. I had childcare support. I had, there was everything in place. I could keep my social welfare payments. I didn't have to go on back to education allowance and lose my book. I had rental accommodation scheme. I was secure. Now, listeners might think, Jesus, she's taking all them state benefits Look at me now, people. I don't need it now. I'm a perfectly good working member of society. So you can actually, if you give people that support, you can move them Mm. forward. It's just they've got to feel secure. So that's part of the reason. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment where you really felt that you were seen when you get your PhD. Mary Robinson Amazing. was the person giving it out to you. And there's, you say, I wasn't the gym slip mum. I wasn't the, you know, pissy product pants. of this pissy pants, this dysfunctional, Slut. you know. You were, you were felt like you were seen for exactly who you'd become. Yeah, like I, that was my third graduation. So I did the tap graduation, my my undergrad, they were pretty underwhelming. Like I thought I was going to get like this wow feeling and it was like, oh, this is a bit crap. <laughs> you know, like what, is this it? Like, you know, I thought, yeah, but Mary, and I didn't expect to feel anything, <laughs> but like, and she's probably the only president that I actually knew because like I'm specialist in psychology, but literally all my other knowledge is bad <laughs> at that point. I've read a bit more now, but like at that, so I knew her, but like I stood in front of her and she looked me in the eye and she's reading to me in Latin. I've no clue what she's saying, but she I know that she sees me. I she's amazing. That was amazing. And she must do it for everyone. But for me, I was like, oh, I've I've conquered this place. And this woman, because she represents everything that I've ever experienced in terms of good and bad in education, she sees me. And then I was like, I, I remember looking at Dave in his lovely blue suit and his blue eyes and I, my little boy Sean was there and I was like, it doesn't even matter because I have him. You know, like it, that. This they can't ever tell me who I am because I have them. But it was so special that day. It was beautiful. And to have Mary Robertson there, I was. it was it was so powerful. Mm. I want to talk to you a bit about why you wanted to write the book and about inequality and about how all of your education you're using towards that point to try and break down barriers for people just like you uh, in terms of education. But I want to find out, your mum and dad both died. So your mum relapsed into heroin, unfortunately. Yes. Um, and your dad got very sick and he refused to stop smoking, which oh. would have... Saved him, but he just wouldn't do it. Um, So a lot of sadness there around both of their deaths. Yeah, so my dad's death particularly, I was just finishing my PhD. My dad didn't actually get a chance to see me me graduate with a PhD. Now, to be fair, like my mum and dad, while my dad had recovery, they were still like always bringing drama. Like it was very hard. So I write about that in the book, like the complexity of... You don't just get into Trinity and then everything else is gone. Like running alongside me being in Trinity is still my parents' addiction and my my family's troubles and also the stuff that I'm carrying. So like you don't just go rags to riches. Oh my God, it's all over and everything's great. 
But like when my dad died, yeah, that was really hard because I was with him. Like I love my dad. I said it and I love my mom. But my dad actually had it brought stability to things. And obviously, like my son adored my dad as well. So him dying, him choosing to continue to smoke was really tough. Um, and, I, you know, the book has actually helped me in some ways kind of see my dad for who he really was. Like at times I had a bit of a deluded idea of him, which is OK. Like sometimes you have to feel you have to see people in a certain way because it's not safe. But him dying was hard. And then my mom. Like, there was a relief in my mom dying. And, like, I know you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to be like, I'm so sad. But, like, when my mom died, it was a relief. Like, my mom never stopped hurting me. Like, just to be real, like, I'm I'm always going to be her her little girl at the end of the day. And she's always going to be, she was always going to be the woman that I wanted to be loved by. And her addiction never stopped. So she always continued to hurt that little girl. And so when she died, that stopped. And that was that helped me heal in a fuller way, and absolutely. So, like, the, while I miss her, the sad, the hard part about my mom dying, obviously, obviously, she's not here, but was the hope, because like I always thought maybe she will get better, you know, and I wanted that for her because yeah. she had a horrific life, and how sad that she died and she never she never got free. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was all, it was very hard and very complicated. And then your family as well, your siblings. I mean, you had a brother in prison, I think. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about my siblings because like, this is my story and not theirs. But like, it's not, we've not all, some of my, like my brother, Tony, he's, he's actually, he's James in the book and he's okay with me saying that because mm. I told him yesterday. Yeah, because he saw the article yesterday and he's like, why didn't you talk about me? <laughs> I, I'm great. And I was like, I will then. I, I, you know, it's not their story, it's mine and I, I'm really mindful of that, of being protective of them because of their own mental health and their own lives. Not everybody is in the mm. position I'm in and I'm privileged to be able to... Do they resent you for that though? Is it okay to ask you that? It's because... do, yeah, some do. Yes, there is a lot of um, I, I think there, yeah, there, there is some um, definitely discord between, yeah, one of one of my siblings particularly doesn't doesn't have a lot of love for me, but I, you know, you you've read my story, like obviously, how could how can we come out of that unscathed? My brother Tony, who's James in the book, like he's just wonderful now. And actually, me and him as kids, we didn't we fought a lot. I, I write about it in the book. Like he was very annoying, but I always just wanted him to love me. Like he was my cool brother, you know. And uh, but Tony's just thriving now in his life. You know, he's in recovery. He's he's amazing job. He's always tried to work and tried to be better. He you know he has that in him. He has like the spirit that I have, and so he's amazing. He's doing really well. And is he proud of you? Oh my god, yeah, he's so proud. Yeah. He's so proud it's weird because I'm like his little sister and sometimes he tells me off like I shouldn't be saying things and whatever but like yeah and he tells me that which is wonderful like we're we are a loving family and it's funny that like I I think it comes across in the book like there's so much more to like living in the life that I did than addiction like there's there's an openness and a warmth and we were warm with each other so Tony's really proud of me yeah, um, I just want to talk to you then about the title because it's poor. It, it, you say in the book that you wanted uh, the title to get under your skin. Yeah. 
Um, and you say, depending on your background, you may shudder with recognition or think of donating to a charity or believe it's natural that some people are at the bottom of the heap and there's no point in beating yourself up about it. So this goes to the heart of it, I think. Um, you know, we live in a deeply unequal society. Mm. We sometimes kid ourselves in Ireland that we don't have a class system. Mm. That's bullshit. Yes. Because some people get to spend lots of money in the institute and other private schools and give their kids a much better chance than yeah. the other ones who are in the schools that you're involved, involved in. So I'm really interested if you can sum up really what the message is you wanted to get across here which I think you've done brilliantly by the way but just about inequality and what we all need to be doing to yeah. call it out and to keep fighting against it. Yeah, I think f- mostly what we need to be doing is investing. Like we need to, re- <laughs> the system needs to be much fairer and you talked about some of the inequities in terms of like private education but there's loads of different ways. So like what I highlight in my book firstly is like the care that I received in school from some teachers. It was variable and there were some teachers that understood uh, inequality and poverty and some that didn't and the ones that didn't really harmed me and the expectation for me in school was not to achieve, was to achieve this lim- so I was limited by the education system and actually taught that I was not very clever because I didn't succeed in it. And so I think we really need to reflect on that. Like leaving sir the leaving cert, you can buy the leaving cert. Like realistically, like if you've good family and if you've got access to resources and you've got all these quiet space and a laptop and all these things, you're going to do better in that race. I'm not resentful of that, but what does that communicate to the people who don't have that? We don't walk around saying, well, I didn't have what they had. We go, I'm not, I'm stupid. I'm not clever because I didn't get 500 points. And like, we need to rectify that. And it's not because, you know, we need poor kids to become more like middle class kids because it's because it's firstly right. But secondly, these kids are really skilled. They're amazing human beings who actually add so much colour and texture and skills to society like I am. And so, like, it's not just a a fairness issue. It's actually like we need to have diversity across. So that's the one of the things I wrote about it. I I called it poor as well because it the system is poor. Like I grew up poor. So you can interpret that in different ways. But the system is poor. The other part then is like in terms of investment in education, like I obviously talk about that a lot and that's my work. But like I could not, I would not be here today if I wanted to go to Trinity. I could, I would not be here today right now. I wouldn't be able to do what I've done today because all of the stuff is cut. So like you lose your back, you lose your money, Mm. you lose your rent allowance or your whatever, your HAP is affected you there's no funding for childcare there's no so like all other you can't knock on the door there's no opportunities to fail all these things hinder like someone like me you need security your your, your biggest fear is like how will i if they take that what will i do so how do we how do we make sure that we're empowering people in in really meaningful ways so like i think we need to reinvest and be sure to do that school dinners grant systems like I, I had a friend who was wanted to go and become a mature student she's coming from a real poor background she got called into social welfare and they asked her why do you want to do um art history how are you going to get a job from that where is where where, where what's the value to, to the society where's the jobs for that prove to me that that's worthwhile like education it what education gave me it didn't give me a job it gave me an ability to think and critically understand the world like prior to trinity 
I didn't really understand that, that all these issues were in the in in the way. And so like education is so much more than just a job. It's actually your potential and the way you think and how you feel and how you see the world. And we all should have access to that, irrespective of the outcome. Yeah. I could keep going. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking what you said about the system being poor because one thing you didn't mention was at one point your family, the kids were taken into care. You were in a yeah, care home. I was in care. With your, your brother, your I siblings. I being in care. Yeah, I know. Your siblings loved were like, it. don't tell it them your life. Food. <laughs> and it was food. Food is a theme here. But then again, you were taken out of that lovely care home that you really were loving and thriving in and you were pushed back into again the dysfunction. Yeah. So you were let and down. And the abuse. Yeah. Every, and the abuse and all of that continued when there could have been this chink of light and you could have got out like I am not angry at my parents. I my I understand why they were the way they were. I'm angry at the system though. So that particular situation, like we were taken into care because I was actually examined as well. Like and and like so, like I have this fear that it was known what was happening to me, and I can't prove that necessarily. I've tried to get my records and stuff, but the reality is, like my parents had no nothing to give. They would no resources. They couldn't change it. But the state could and the system could have made it better. The teachers, some did, some didn't. That particular situation, I loved being a care. My brothers were so angry at me, but I just loved the food and the consistency. It's a big thing for me, obviously. <laughs> and there was, it was warm and there was beds and all this stuff. But when, when we were sent home, I was sent home to be abused again. And the social wealth, social workers, I mean... They, I write a bit in the book there what they write about my family. It's like, well, their parents make bad choices. The kids are going to have to live with that consequence. And I'm more angry about that than anything that my parents did because I think we should have been protected and we could have been protected. And it's similar now in here. Like poor kids need to be looked after by those of us who have resources, who are capable of it, and their, fa- and their parents do as well. And I, so that's the thing that I'm... I suppose my message is um, it's not necessary to vilify my mum and dad, but also to understand them, to understand poverty and its consequences and ask the system to do better. And it's also the other really important thing I took is... um is that you and say Lynn Ruan or Cindy Joyce or you are anomalies like and you shouldn't be held up that this is the only way it's they have to achieve in such a high level like you know there's lots of people going to Trinity and not ending up with firsts and whatever and they they are just as important and is that is that the kind of thing that we need to be just giving opportunities to everybody no matter what they're going to achieve whether they're going to study their heads off or whether they're not they're going to do just okay or get a 2-1 or a 2-2 or whatever it is exactly like i say that in my book do not hold me up as an example for other people in poverty what i've done is really rare and very hard and it's not easy and like don't i don't want to that was one of the reasons i i was reticent about writing the book is because I don't want other poor people to think, well, she's done it, I should have done it. I don't want to add to that burden because that is a burden. That's not true. Like I did this through lots of supports, lots of people, lots of financial help, and still it was hard. Still, It's still hard. And so, yeah, it's really important that, like, that's my message, that um, it's not easy and I don't want to be used as a role model. I do want people to use my story, though, to understand what you can do and what could be done to help people like me. And in your work now, that's what you're doing, basically. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I, yeah, I love my work. I actually, yeah, so I love Manus. So I work in Manus. I'm a lecture, see, a associate lecturer, senior, prof- senior professor. Get the title right. I can't Come remember. On, doctor, I was getting it wrong. Dr. Katrina. Yeah, I just got promoted there in January. Oh, so I'm delighted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What were you promoted to? Associate professor from assistant professor, which is amazing. Senior lecturer. And, uh, but yeah, Manus, like, I suppose. I love, I, you know, Trinity was an amazing experience, but the student body in Maynooth is is much more representative of, of me and, and and where I come from. But like, obviously, the institution is is as wonderful. Um, we're all the same. All universities have the the same potential to make the world a fairer place. But what I do is like I've, I suppose, when I left Trinity, I was like, what will I, where, what will I be now? But like, I really had this thought when I was studying there and 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 actually working there. Like there's so many people in this system that n- know the system is rigged and do nothing about it. They're privileged and they just accrue all the benefits for themselves and their families. And they really, they might give to charity, they might donate to a foundation or whatever, but like they don't really use their voice to make it fairer. So like I've really tried to just make that part of my my job and and, and I've been really successful at it. Because I'm really clever and I research really well and I've loads of skills, but also because I'm so passionate about the subject. So I run a program called the STEM Passport for Inclusion. It's the biggest SFI Discover grant um, and the Department of Education fund it. Basically, I am working with 5,000 girls from working class backgrounds to make sure that they're empowered to see that they can be anything they want to be. And it's a real systems change. We developed a a qualification. So girls now that are in deaf schools actually graduate from our university by taking the module that we teach. And then we work with women in industry and men and their mentors to the kids. Now, let's be clear, these kids don't need role models. Like I had great role models and I was a great role model, getting up, working hard, feeding my family, doing all stuff. But they just don't know what these jobs look like. So like we've like 300 odd women who are mentors on the program come in and meet the Desh kids and just learn how amazing they are. And the other part of my job is I actually have a micro-credential that actually is teaching people about EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion. So like what we're doing in Maynooth is actually, because the problem isn't the kids, the problem is the system. So when they go into a place like Microsoft or Accenture or a place like that, they're full of people who had loads of loads of affluence. So they don't get what it's like to go in with a Dublin accent and to swear a lot or whatever or feel different. So like we're doing this micro-credential to try and educate industry about what it's like and what class is like and what it's like to live with class. You're incredible. And I just think the book is called Poor, but what we want is for it to sell a million copies for million. Oprah to advertise. And then you can write a book called Rich. Yes, Rich would be the best. <laughs> and then you can come in and tell us what that's like. Oh my God. No, I won't then because I'll be, be way be beyond. I'll be way us. beyond Roisin. You'll, you'll yes. be in the Bahamas and you'll be like, whatever. Yeah, Roisin exactly. who? Roisin don't know who, who. Exactly. Yeah, Rich is the sequel. <laughs> Definitely. I might just have mid-rich and then rich, maybe. Yeah, and yeah. I'm so excited. You're going off to BBC see you're going to be on Woman's Hour which is our holy grail I'm not surprised the book is amazing as I said at the beginning I could have talked to you for I know this is probably one of our longest podcasts ever but I'm not going to cut it down Um, I just want to say as well just Roisin just so that I can say this on the podcast the reason I wrote this book was because of your mother Anne so like previous to when Penguin asked me, like, it's not easy to tell your story publicly, especially with the trauma and stuff that I've been through. And I am safe to do it because I'm I'm supported. I'm in therapy and I've loads of love in my life. But I wasn't sure if I could trust them. 
And I read your mum's book and actually it Open just... Open-hearted, available in all good bookshops. She'd it's, kill me. It's so fantastically written. It's a beautiful story, but it's so poignant and beautiful. And it just made me think, oh, I, I can do this because she did it. So it's just so lovely to be here with you and actually to have seen you in her story and everything else. So thank you to Anne and thank you to you. And you met my sister Rachel on the podcast the last time. So you know what a great woman she is too. And that means so much. And my mum is going to be so pleased to think that her book has somehow had anything to do with this amazing book. And uh, what a lovely thing. And isn't it just go back to that connectivity and yeah. those little moments where somebody encourages or supports and it has such uh, repercussions in such a positive way. Yeah. So well done, Good Katriona. <laughs> Katrina. <laughs> I know I'm only joking. <laughs> well done, Katrina. It's a it's a really important book that I think is going to make a big difference. And, um, and also thanks for all the work you do and for everything you're going to continue to do. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan and the book is called Poor, A Story of Becoming. And as you can hear, I hope it's well worth you getting your hands on it. And if you want to get in touch, we're on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and at IT Women's Podcast. That's it from us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with help this week from Katie Mellett and on sound, as always, JJ Vernon. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>